0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
1: Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to everyone joining us from around the country and around the world. My name is Jesse Hagopian, and I want to welcome you to our virtual event, Remaking Schools in the Time of Coronavirus. Uh, I'm an editor for Rethinking Schools magazine and a co-editor of Teaching for Black Lives. And I edited the book, More Than a Score, The New Uprising Against High Stakes Testing from Haymarket Books. And before we get started, I wanna thank the sponsors of this event, Haymarket Books, The New Press and Rethinking Schools. And I wanna urge everyone to visit their websites and buy lots and lots of books and, and subscriptions to help these important organizations continue their ongoing work. and. All right. And so I want to get started talking about remaking schools in this moment of crisis. And I'm excited today to be joined in this conversation by fellow educators and authors Wayne Au and Noliwe Rooks. Wayne Au is a professor in the School of Educational Studies at the University of Washington Bothell. He is a longtime Rethinking Schools editor, co-editor of the book Teaching for Black Lives, and also the author of A Marxist Education, Learning to Change the World. And Noliwe Rooks is the W.E.B. Du Bois Professor of Literature at Cornell University and is the author of of Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education, which won an award for nonfiction from the Hurston Wright Foundation. And I just want to begin by grounding our conversation in this unprecedented crisis that we find ourselves in today. The mounting COVID-19 crisis is wreaking havoc around the world. As of today, over 2.5 million people have confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the world, although the number is much higher due to lack of testing and you know tens of thousands of people have lost their lives around the globe maybe 40 over 40,000 here alone in in our country and hospitals around the world have been filled beyond capacity and in places like new york city many healthcare workers don't have enough personal protective equipment to guard themselves against the disease so we face an unprecedented Precedented health crisis, but also the economy is in free fall for most people anyway. Right. U.S. unemployment has risen by 22 million people since the pandemic started. And the U.S. now has not seen this level of joblessness since the Great Depression. And, you know, our government has rolled out the CARE Act, which gave 2.2 trillion in stimulus aid to try to address this economic crisis. But predictably, workers got the short end of the stick and the corporation got massive windfalls. And then even just today, there was a, a vote in the Senate for a new stimulus bill. And this bill actually provides no stimulus checks for U.S. households, no additional money for food stamps no limits on fossil fuel bailouts, no funds for uh, election security, no bailouts for the postal service, um, and really no additional funds for uh, the states who are being hard hit uh, with this loss of revenue. And and of course, what we've come to talk about here today is the fact that many millions of students are at home due to mass school closures, around the world and in our own country, along with millions of their parents who are sheltering in place and who have lost their jobs. And so we find ourselves in an unprecedented um, crisis here uh, in so many ways, economically and with health care. And today we really want to dive into what this crisis means for education in the United States, and uh, I'm really excited to be in this conversation with you both. So, welcome to Wayne and to No Leeway. Thanks for being here today.
2: Thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation
1: itself. Oh. No doubt. Happy to be here today, and see y'all. No doubt. Yes, and I hope uh, hope your families are are healthy and and well at this time i know it's we're all going through a lot of
3: stress but your your families are okay yes That's yeah good. yeah we're doing we're doing all right we're hanging we're hanging in there um you know i feel like going going a little getting a little uh a little bit cabin fever i guess but uh but uh you know uh, ultimately we're doing fine and can't shouldn't can't really complain i think
1: uh, okay i think we're we're all In a similar situation, (laughs) it's uh, it's not easy, even um, if things are going okay. It's still a challenge in these times. But I thought uh, I'm really looking forward to this discussion with you both. Um, I was just saying that to No Leeway, um, you know, your book on uh, cutting school is one of my favorites in education, and Wayne everything you've written (laughs) has taught me so much. Uh, And so this is just an honor to be in conversation with you both. And I want to just begin um, by talking about what our schools looked like before the crisis. Right. Um, People widely understand now that we're in the middle of a, a COVID crisis, but for many of our students and families, they have been suffering under all kinds of crises for for years, right? The the crisis of institutional racism and of segregation and poverty and food insecurity and massive wealth inequality. Frankly, they've been suffering under a crisis of capitalism, I, I think, for a long time. So in in cutting school, No Leeway, you write that uh, about this concept of segrenomics, uh, a, a term you coined to to discuss. Um, how corporations have long profited off of segregation and education. So you wrote, in almost all major American cities, most Black and Latino students attend public schools where a majority of their classmates qualify as poor or low income. Such neighborhoods and students um, are the engines of growth for both charter schools and other educational businesses. Segregation pays. So I thought before we go into how COVID impacts education. Let's talk about the crisis that many of our students were in before the pandemic.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for pulling this panel together. And thanks to the folks who are out there. And a special shout out to the parents and caregivers who find themselves as teachers um, in this this period of time. And another shout out for teachers. Um, Hopefully you are feeling much more love. Um, as, as these schools are closed down and everybody I'm talking to um, is sending lots and lots of love to you. Yeah. So segronomics the, the concept of Sagranomics really tries to get at uh, the fact that these schools were put together, public schools um, that are compulsory are a legacy of the post-Reconstruction period. Some people don't know that. I know that y'all know that, but I want to say it was not always the case um, that we required um, our American citizens, required it um, to go to to school. And it was certainly not the case that we said, okay, states um, and municipalities are going to pay for that to happen. That's a legacy of Reconstruction. It comes out of the Civil War, comes out of, um, trying to figure out how to educate the the formerly enslaved. When I started doing the research for this book, I thought I was just going to talk about the 20th century. It was a period where there was a lot of philanthropic support for poor communities, um, inner city urban areas, um, you know, failing schools. Uh, corporate and phil- philanthropic organizations really had stepped up um, in in um, you know, the 2000s, from the 1990s into the 2000s. And we're saying this is a civil rights crisis. This is a civil rights issue and we need to fix it. And I wanted to understand that. I wanted to understand where all of that came from, all of this interest in money and very idiosyncratic forms of education, very different forms of education than were prescribed for wealthy communities. In that period of time, you were seeing no excuses charter schools um, uh, on the rise. You know, you were seeing tying test scores to firing teachers, um, closing schools if their test scores weren't high enough, and replacing them with charter schools. And I was sort of like, okay, this is capitalism at work. I can see that. I can see the billionaires. I can see the corporations. But let me figure out where it came from. And I think the biggest surprise and some of my upset with the book, quite frankly, is why didn't I know that that has always been how public education has functioned for for black kids, brown kids, um, indigenous kids and poor children? Um, Why didn't I know that that's how it was designed? Um, I was thinking this was some kind of intervention here in the 20th and 21st century, when in fact, it was just a changing saying, to to paraphrase um, Mary Baraka's term, it was just what had always been. These schools were functioning as they were supposed to, as an engine of labor for labor, for workers, for large corporations. Um, The kind of education that folks got was far less important in the 19th century, um, in the 20th century, in the 21st century, than was being able to provide the workers um, the, with enough skills to do the low wage jobs um, that, that kept, that really, with uh, the grease, that kind of kept the whole thing moving. So, segregationomics is just shoving together segregation and economics. Um, the high levels of segregation that we've all, always seen, the, the hand-wringing that we in education and outside of education do about segregation um, and attendant forms of under-education. What I started to ask at the end of, of writing this book is, but if there's so much money to be made by undereducating kids in segregated communities, for these corporations, honestly, what is the motivation for them to end segregation? Is it hard for us to break it up? Is it hard for us, Brown v. Board or no, um, to, to actually educate kids the same um, in the same way? Because there's simply too much money to be made by under-educating certain kids. Um, and you need that hyper-segregation in order to make it.
1: Thank you. Thank you. for breaking Thank you. that down. Sure. sure. Uh, when you've done uh, also a lot of research and writing about the inequality that's that's uh, built into the school system.
3: Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as, as we look at the the you know, the crisis the preceding the crisis. Right. And and there's so much um, uh, resonates so much with so, of what Noliwe said um, around, like, you know, you really have to ask these questions about, you know, where where's the. Um, You know, not just the motivations, but, you know, sort of where's the payoff for treating these communities wholesale uh, in in these kinds of ways. Right. Um, And so we could you know, you you could see it. But but fundamentally, the crisis of education pre um, coronavirus, pre covid-19 was really, uh, you know, the crisis of of a capitalist education um, that 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 really is built on systems that are really meant to produce and maintain inequalities, whether. You know whatever we'll talk about testing a little bit later but you know whether it's test scores or graduation rates or uh, access to resources in schools all that kind of stuff uh school funding um um you know uh, and then and then the things outside of school that we know impact uh how how students engage with schools um whether it's you know affordable housing access to health care um uh you know for, affordable dental care um livable wages like all these things food insecurity um that the crises that exist for schools uh, pre-COVID um, are, you know, are in many ways the ones that we're seeing now, um, you know, just being exasperated by 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 the the response um, uh, to to the coronavirus. It, it was it was it was a crisis of massive inequality and a massive differential resources, and and people working within a system where they, um, you know, the the. The, the value for them was is taking of uh, taking care of themselves and their own and and having affluent parents you know protecting their PTA money and and tax systems that that uh, benefit the wealthy that don't benefit the masses of people right I mean these are the things that produce the educational inequalities that we saw beforehand and these yep, are the same yep. things that uh, are essentially um um you know um uh, being again exasperated by by what's happening in in the now
1: and, and maybe just a quick follow up question on that Wayne. Um, because you talked about how, how the education system reflects the crises of, of capitalism. But maybe you could just talk about the, uh, how the public school system was formed in the first place, the, the desires, the conflicting desires uh, between like big business and, and also communities that wanted public education.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's been part of the the history of, of public ed- education in this country is, is always just a site of contradiction, um, where you have, you know, usually the large and powerful, and the corporations, and, and a lot of the folks that know, know the way raised, um, um, you know, seeing seeing the public school system as in some some ways a mechanism for producing workers, and some spaces in ways a mechanism for actually generating profit, like we're seeing more more of now, um, um, and and also a way to sort of do other kinds of Uh, social and even cultural forms of control, right? Particularly for, um, well, partly for, uh, you know, non-white communities, uh, in terms of Americanization and, and sort of the racial politics around that. Um, but then also just the using schools, uh, historically as a way to uh, build nationalism and, and support capitalism as a whole in terms of the, the production of ideology in this country. Um, and so you see schools playing that kind of role, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, um, you know, uh, all of our communities have always uh, used education and made use of schools in ways um, that would that would contradict those larger forces too, right? Uh, as schools, as sites of resistance and places to, to, to develop critical consciousness. And so, um, you know, for communities of color in particular, uh, historically in this country as, as schools, as the public school system is being formed, um, you know, for some of those communities, they were like, we don't want any part of this because we're going to do our own schooling and take care of our own. Um, And part of that was a cultural decision, too. Right. We didn't necessarily want to have, uh, you know, our kids uh, in schools that were being run by white folks with a predominantly Eurocentric curriculum and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, um, And and part of it was then being segregated by the racism by the larger school system, too. Um, But but yeah, so 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 we've always sort of had the space of like this larger force pushing education and and folks using education to try and sort of maintain uh, uh, sort of status quo inequalities from the beginning uh, but at the same time um, you know uh, uh, you know communities of color working-class communities also uh, making use of of schools uh, in, in ways that uh, that would that, that are resistant you know and and, and that can be a counter uh, to to the inequalities no doubt no doubt um, you know I'm
1: teaching this year uh, language arts and ethnic studies of um, framework and here in Seattle and high school. And just to add about the crises before COVID, I mean, we have 150 homeless students at the high school where I teach at, right? There are 40,000 homeless kids across Washington state alone. Uh, You know, studies have shown that like half of students in America are uh, below the poverty line. I mean, the the crises for our students are, are so real. And, you know, we've had to build a Black Lives Matter at school movement to push back against the institutional racism that is in your face for our black kids every day. I mean, the the level of hate crimes have doubled in Seattle and have skyrocketed around the, the country. And they, they have gone right into the school buildings, right? You have, uh, you know, police officers, um, jacking kids up against the wall, you know, viral videos from Chicago and other places of them knocking kids down. Um, you know, our school systems are, are we, we have 1.6 million kids in this country that go to a school with no counselor, but has a police officer. Mm-hmm. Right. So the kind of uh, way that We just perpetuate trauma in our schools is really breathtaking Um, before the crisis. But I want us to get into now how you think the crisis is going to impact this already inequitable system. I think many people whose privileges allowed them not to see what was going on just didn't understand that schools provided much more than instruction for many kids, that they provided vital services such as disability support services, healthcare, you know, lunch and breakfast, and and a lot more. So at the same time, we know most of our our schools uh, are not community schools that really provide all the wraparound services students need. We also know that they have have played vital roles in many of our kids and families' life. So what do you think the impact of You know, the COVID crisis is on the most vulnerable students. And uh, yeah, let's let's talk about that.
2: Yeah, I I think as you were saying, one of the um, education is one of the things that happens in in school buildings. One of the things that um, is being missed, I think, for, for kids across the spectrum is a sense of community, a different kind of sense of community, um, where you go and, you know, you have your different cliques and different classrooms and people you sit with and jokes that you share, um, and relationships that you're really able to, uh, cultivate and identities, um, that are sort of yours. Um, and to have that taken from you wholesale, um, and even I, I, I teach college students and, you know, my college students all went home um, as well. And I'm talking to them um, about the stresses and strains of, of being in a home where or for some being in a shelter, some left Cornell and ended up in a in a, their families uh, with their families in transitional housing um, or uh, dealing with ice issues. Um, the, the, the coronavirus has not stopped or for a while or there at the beginning uh, did not stop ice from separating, um, families. And those were the the families that I was sending Cornell was sending, um, kids back into not all of the Cornell kids before that, that population. And I think about that. These are adults, you know, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. um, And they're adults that have had the benefit of an institution that is focused laser like um, on their well-being and betterment Um, in in privileged spaces like that. That's one of the things that kids can expect Mm -hmm. to think about kids who don't have that, who don't who who are in much rockier kinds of circumstances, who are then told, um, go find. Some internet. Everything's internet. You got to go online uh, in order to do this. What we know is some communities uh, use the phone as their primary source of internet access. They do not have broadband. Um, that's part of what the tech inequality looks like. Uh, they're told to so then go to uh, a public library. Go to, uh, there's an image that was coming across my, my social media feed not long ago of a young man sitting in front of McDonald's, I think, sitting on the sidewalk in front of McDonald's um, doing his homework because he didn't have um, internet access. Those kinds of inequalities, I think, have an impact both on the ability of the students to think of themselves as students, to think of themselves as value, to maintain um, a center, a kind of center and a a core. It also makes it difficult for them just to keep up with whatever schoolwork um, they're supposed to be doing. So at, at, in terms of social community, technological, this is devastating, unavoidable, right? Like we understand that there, there's a pandemic. Well, some of us understand there's some leaders who apparently do not fully grasp that, um, there's a pandemic. And so heroic actions have to be taken to, to keep people safe. But the fact that we are in a country that, um, where students, communities and parents are far more prepared for a crazy person to come into their building and shoot them than they are for the disruption of education. The fact that emergency planning ideas of um, what do we do in a crisis if education is impacted is not on anybody's table. Is not anything that anyone is preparing teachers or students or communities for tells you something. Um, about the lack of understanding of what those schools um, represent, what our schools represent, and a lack of value, um, a lack of ability to completely value um, those babies, if they're 20, and still call them babies, I'm old, um, those babies who uh, go there and it's their lifeline. Um, It's a certain kind of lifeline. If you take that, what, 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 I don't know that we fully know what that kind of impact will be. We'll be able to trace um, what they did and didn't learn during the break. We'll be able to, to trace if they lost math, if they lost language, we'll be able to trace that. And we will, with certain kids, we will. Um, I think the rest, it it's, it's, uh, uh, remains unknown, the full, the full impact. Yeah.
1: yeah.
3: So, Um, yeah, I guess if I were just to add, I mean, I, I just also think a lot about the, um, you know, like, you know, what does it mean to try and teach and learn now in the, in the, in the midst of this, you know, like we know domestic violence, you know, cases are up by some astronomical percent, um, uh, and because of the, the, the quarantine and the shelter in place orders. And we know like the, you know, it It's we're not we're not in irregular conditions. And so my worry about about the impacts of the crisis in the now is sort of like what, you know, sort of what harms are being visited upon kids, you know, for for a wide range of of reasons um, who, you know, who who are, um, you know, mental health stuff, whatever, just trying to, like, cope and deal with the situation and the conditions that they're in. And we're expecting them uh, uh, and we're expecting them to learn. Right. Uh, and we expect them to, to get to the McDonald's parking lot to get some access to Wi-Fi. Right. To do this like like it, it, to me, it's, it's ridiculous to to be to be seeing it that way. And so and so I I worry, you know, um, you know, I think there's things around the, the academic and this and the sort of scholarly subjects that, that folks are worried about. And and that raises sort of larger questions around sort of what is the purpose of school and what should we be learning or not? But I'm I more i more worry about the um, uh, the long term effects of, of sort of the the psychological impact that i think this whole moment is having on uh kids especially um uh, kids who 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 are broke and just having to to make it make it through whatever to just survive the moment you know i mean that's that's not an easy task and and when we don't have you know what little social supports we have in the united states and compared to other countries it is very very little when we lose one of those main ones in public schools um one of those spaces that can be a, a, a you know that can be um a support for folks um for kids, then it's, it's a major, like losing community is major and it impacts us in such huge ways. And so I, I am just currently like really, really worried about how, how our students come out of this. Um, even from a mental health perspective, like, like, you know, we can learn stuff later if need, if need be, but it's more about how do you come out as a person and and feeling about yourself in the world. And, um, you know, is to me is like, is, is the big thing that I, that I worry about in terms of one of the big extensions of this.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I'm worrying about the well-being of, of my students in my classes, you know, the, their social and emotional well-being, their psychological well-being, um, much more than I'm worried about what they what they might have missed from my class academically. And, you know, when we talk about those 150 homeless kids at my high school, it wasn't just meals that they got from Garfield, right? I mean... The meal, they've set up some sites around Seattle where you can go and get meals, um, which, you know, is a can be a challenge for some families to get to those sites, first of all. Um, But so there is some food that's still being provided, thankfully, for for uh, families that need it. But but those homeless students relied on our school to do their laundry. Right. (laughs) They relied on our school to take showers. Uh, you know the the trauma counseling that helps them get through the day, um, and so their basic well being. I feel like is where we need to be flooding resources, and it's just an obscenity to me that we can live in a city with the tech giants that we have. You know, I mean, the richest corporations the world has ever known: Boeing, Microsoft, Starbucks, Amazon. Uh, go down the list and and yet we have so many homeless kids, right? And yet we have a huge digital divide in in, in uh, our city. You know, they said that a third of students already have not li- logged on to um, the school websites. And we also have, that coincides with the fact that a third of students in the Seattle schools live in poverty, right? So um, yeah, I'm worried about about their their social and emotional well-being right now and and trying to check in with them um but you know for those who don't have internet access it's hard to to maintain that connection with them um, and that, I i want to um ask you all a question about this idea of what they're going to be losing academically as well um, you know The New York Times editorial board wrote a piece about learning loss and they quoted researchers who said some students could lose an entire academic year of learning and it would um, also, they said, quote, a learning reversal of this magnitude could hobble an entire generation unless state leaders quickly work to reverse the slide. So I just. think a lot of people are thinking about what's going to be lost academically, um, as well. And, um, how do we think about that?
2: Sure, Wayne, you want to go first this time? I feel like we've developed a round robin thing. Okay. Do you- yeah, yeah, sure. So,
3: um, you know, I'll, 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 go, I'll keep it briefly. I'm trying to keep, we have about 30 minutes left to our conversation. I want to make sure we get to some of the other stuff we want to talk about. But, um, uh, yeah, you know, for me, I like, Again, the whole the whole thing raises big questions for me, big philosophical big philosophical questions about what's the purpose of schooling, what should we be learning, not learning, what's important to learn, um, and so you know I, I understand folks who who are like oh my kid's going to fall behind in whatever math or writing or whatever, um, and part of me is sympathetic to that, part of me also isn't in the sense that like look mm-hmm. you know we've already we were already dealing with a system that was focusing almost solely on like tested subjects right, and so and so it was it was this hyper Hyper focus on a particular kind of academics that I don't think was um, uh, particularly healthy for for our students, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not that I'm opposed to folks learning how to do math or to read critically or to write. So don't no 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 one get that twisted. Um, But it's more about like what is that? What is this whole focus on on these these uh, very rigid notions of of curriculum and and things that are focused mainly on passing the tests? What does that do to the quality of education overall? And so in some ways, part of me is also like, well, you know, I know I get that people are worried about. Losing time and from from an academic point of view, but on the other hand, I'm like, we're also, um, you know, we're also getting a moment here to sort of like rethink all that stuff. Like, what is it? Like, what what is important about learning this or learning this or learning this um, uh, versus like what I'm able to actually engage my kid with at home, right? In, in this space of 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 you know, there's I've I've got lots of friends who're like, hey, I finally get to teach my kids social studies, and they're going to get recess and lunchtime. Right, because they're at home and we're and we're we're working through this stuff. Like we like so so yes, there will be some things sort of lost if your framework is purely this academic like test score thing. Um, but on the other hand, I think there's a lot of opportunity for things for things to be gained, even from you know cultural knowledge and cultural practices and people are have their kids gardening and they're in the earth and and making connections to the environment. Right? I mean like there's all this other stuff going on. And so, and so, you know, some things might be lost, but there's also going to be some things gained. And and again, it's really about what, what do we feel like we is important for uh, you know, for us as communities and as people um, to to learn about and and be, and sort of be with uh, in in terms of knowledge in this world.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I I have a, a knee jerk, literal, almost hit in the gut reaction to hearing, um, a generation of what I'm what I, in my mind, I went to black people um, and brown people be hobbled. Um, that's a that's a terminology that's a that, that leaves a, a, a vision, mm-hmm. um, and that language is power. And um, I'd rather not refer to people, you know, as as being hobbled. It's also ableist, you know. But um, yeah, no. but I I do think I, I think. The larger thing for me is that these schools were shut down um, one after another, school district after school district without, as far as I know, for the districts I'm familiar with, actually asking people in some communities that were gonna be hardest hit, how can we do this well? What does it look like? Uh, We're gonna have to take these schools offline. Um we're gonna have to go to online learning. We're gonna have to go to some other kind of way of doing this. Tell us what we need to know to do it well. Um, join us at this table as we're about to dismantle this, um, and tell us for your kids, the kids in your neighborhood, um, who do we need to have at this table? who What do we need to put in place? What is most urgent? Um, for me, uh, that's a that's a continuing issue when talking about public education in certain kids. who do you ask um, for the help there, there are all manner of folks in all of those communities there' are no commun- there are no poor communities no struggling communities no black communities uh, no brown communities don't have a, a plethora of educators of knowledge of thought of activists who who are willing um, to go the extra mile and do what needs to be done to make sure those kids get educated, but we never get asked, right? And so, someone else created a problem on top of a problem, um, and it's going to be up to us to solve it, or our kids are going to suffer. Um, some of what Wayne was saying is is absolutely, I, mean, I think, is the reasons that we're seeing this big jump in homeschooling amongst amongst certain communities. You have. Um, indigenous folks, black folks, some Latinx folks who are like, let me let me have my kid. Let me teach them. Let me teach them social stu- study. Let me teach them science by going out and gardening. Let me teach you. Like, let me do it. Because what I see happening in the taxpayer supported public schools uh, is not are not my values are not in the best interest of my kid. And then people keep saying my kids undereducated on top of that. Like you're not even in line with what I want for them as being a human being. And then you're going to tell me something wrong with them or that they can't learn. Right. Give them give them give them back. Right. We're seeing that's the largest kind of spike that we're seeing for all of those reasons. But what we know, what I guarantee you um, for the kids who are left behind or are trying to navigate this the best way they know how they're going to come out labeled, they're going to come out a problem. Um, being referred to as a problem, Cornell West talks about the difference between being a problem people and a people with problems, um, and that is always stuck in my head because you can almost predict the moments where problems not of their making are going to be used to to start to describe entire communities as a problem. It's co- It costs us too much to educate you now because during the time of Corona. You lost too much time. Um, we, it's going to cost us too much to find some more teachers. In New York City, I, I, I saw like 50 teachers had, had died um, from, from um, Corona. We now have to replace you. But it's only, you know, so certain teachers in certain communities seem to be harder hit, as is true with so much. So these problems that are not of the making of these communities. What's going to happen is they're going to be labeled as a problem that is hard for us all to solve. And now we need you to roll up your sleeves, bootstrap, you know, get some stop listening to rap music and playing games and teach your kids. And without actually acknowledging that, you know, it's it's our kids that that this system is committed to not teaching to not. The system is not, so the system is gonna have to change on the other side of this. And at some point, you know, we're gonna have to talk about the ways that communities have always known how to educate kids. These kid, kid, kids is not rocket science. It's not like nobody's ever done it. You know, we are not do it. Um, and people know how it's being done wrong. Um, but what that looks like to have that knowledge be central in a publicly funded space, in a publicly funded institution, is the battle to me, and is the conversation that we're going to have to have at some point? Yeah,
3: um, I'm gonna we're gonna flip it a little bit because I was gonna ask Jesse a question. He's I, he's been writing on his blog about uh, parenting at home. It sort of picks up on the idea of, of folks doing the homeschooling piece too, right? Um, and so you know, basically, and I, and, and this is the language I've seen you use elsewhere. Jesse, you've been talking about how parents are being literally conscripted into being teachers for their kids at home, right? Like suddenly we have all these really professional teachers, right? Folks, it's their job and they got advanced degrees, become teachers and and work with kids in schools. And then suddenly like, okay, everyone's at home. All right, parents, all y'all teach everybody. And like, it's going to be like, pretend that that's going to be like, okay. And easy. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of advice, lots of conversation about how, you know, how we should go about this. Um, you know, uh, how do we go about teaching our kids at home? Um, but you know, I feel like a lot of the advice really misses, um, how that for a lot of the most vulnerable communities, uh, working class communities, working class communities of color in particular, folks who are having to basically still maintain work as, as of what considered quote unquote essential, essential jobs, um, they don't really have time to be teachers at the same time. And, and I would say it's even true, not just working class communities, but even for myself as sure, like a sure. university administrator, I like, I, I don't have time to do my job and, 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 you know, and teach my son, right? Um, but I think it falls hardest on, the, on, on working class folks uh, for sure. Um, and so, so what do you think, what do you, like, what's your vision of, of sort of, um, uh, learning at home, uh, for the rest of the school year in the midst of, of, of the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah. I mean, it's
1: been a real challenge for me too um, to continue teaching my courses and to try to teach my seven-year-old and 11-year-old at home. Um, I think the first thing that needs to be said is we need to eliminate all high stakes to education completely for the rest of the year everywhere. Uh, and that means grades as well as high stakes testing. Uh, the The idea that we're going to be grading kids uh, or punishing kids with, with lower grades uh, is just outrageous to me. When you think about disparities that exist in this country when you think about some of our kids don't have a place to sleep at night and we're going to be judging whether they're able to do online learning i mean there's just no equitable way to do it and any kind of um grading will just further exacerbate the inequalities that were already there and so we got to eliminate that altogether. and then parents um, are in a tough spot of just having to try to do whatever they can, right, um, to, to support their kids. And I have no judgment for parents who uh, are not in a place to be able to um, provide, you know, an education going through all the subjects of the day. I think um, if your kid is able to write, you know, regulate themselves and have uh, come at the end of the day, you all are still talking to each other after being quarantined for weeks at a time. You're, you're, you're learning a lot about social and emotional development there. Um, and so, you know, parents whose main subject is film studies <laughs> during the day, uh, I can't really judge that right now. Whatever we mm-hmm. have to do, to get through the day and to, um, let our kids know we love them and we'll support them. That's, that's, um, what I think we need to do. Um, at the same time, I've found great joy in being able to, uh, engage my kids in different subjects that, that are important to me. And I think as, as parents are able to, um, there's, there can be a lot of great, uh, positive mental health for both your kids and you, engaging them in, in um, subjects that are important to you. So, you know, my 11 year old son, I think the greatest academic outcome for him during quarantine has been him putting together mm-hmm. uh, a hip hop song with his friend and they would get on, on uh, FaceTime and share the lyrics and then record them and send them to each other and add it to the beat they made. And they came up with this track called Quarantines. Wow. Yeah. And they, you know, and they, they talk about social isolation and how to stay connected to each other while they're apart. And they talk about racism against Chinese Americans. And, and um, you know, they, they brought in writing and reading and social studies and music and art. And that's something they never would have had a chance to do. Right. And so I think there's ways that we can... Um, We can emphasize other things um, that they wouldn't necessarily get when we have the opportunity to. Um, But I think that the direction that education is going in, though, is very scary right now. And I want to move into discussing uh, some very uh, real challenges that we're we're facing Uh, for the remaking of public schools right now, because I think we're experiencing what uh, really a textbook example of what Naomi Klein has called the shock doctrine, where billionaires exploit moments of crisis to further line their pockets. um, And they are just feasting off this COVID crisis. We saw how Disaster capitalism worked during Hurricane Katrina, right? The charter industry came in after the disaster in New Orleans and replaced all the public schools with a privatized system. There's now it's basically 100 percent charter school, no public schools left in New Orleans. So how do you all think the shock doctrine is at play right now in this in this education crisis?
2: Well, I I uh. I'm a little bit grateful that this did not happen about 10 years ago when it seemed to me the privatization movement was riding a little higher than maybe it is now. Um, now we do have presidential candidates saying or uh, Joe Biden has said very clearly, you know, I think we need to be putting more money into traditional public schools um, and and not necessarily talking about the charter schools as much or privatization as much or vouchers as much. Um about 10 years ago, that was not the narrative. And so this happening then, I think we would have an organized movement for privatizing everything. Like, why open your school back up? Let's just continue with the failed online learning. Mm-hmm. Um, online learning, it, it just it's not online learning um, works well for well prepared students. Um if students have, have, you know, a really solid basis um, in grammar, math, blah, 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 and they're at the upper levels of whatever charts that you have, they have curiosity and whatever, they can manage to online learn for some time and not lose ground, right? They're, they're going to come out of it and still be in the same classes. They're not going to be in remedial anything. They're not going to be for kids who actually need some help. With um, what style of learning do you have? For example, um, you know, kids in poor communities—you don't always know—are they visual learners? Do they more learn by doing? Do they? Uh, do you need to explain it more times? Do they need to see it? Um, in wealthier school districts, teachers spend time figuring out how individual kids learn best. You don't get that with online learning. And I think in earlier periods, a little earlier. Um, We were so enamored with the idea that teachers were evil um, and that schools were unnecessary and we should just let everybody go go and teach themselves that this would have been much scarier than it is now. I think people um, there will be move. I think what's coming, what we know from what we can see is all of the shortfalls that we're having at state and local levels. um, The first pot. That the money is being withdrawn from is the educational pot. You know, in these early days, as people talk about what are we going to do for these budget shortfalls, we're seeing education budgets being slashed. I think in New York City, it's almost 50%. Um, they're expecting about 50% less um, for public schools. And I'm hearing that story all over the country. Um, how do you remake? Uh, you can't. So given that, if you're getting half your budget out, you can't do what you did before the crisis. You just can't. Um, But we do need to start having conversations now because we know that. Like we know you take half the money, it's not going to look the same, but who's going to get shortchanged more than anybody else? Uh, We know that too, I feel like. So we need to start having those conversations right now. If you're going to consolidate schools, if you're going to start moving teachers around. If you're going to start coming up with like cute, um, experimental teaching techniques, we need to have folks from those communities at the table talking about what will and will not work, um, at, at, up front and not have the billionaires come rush in with a checkbook and say, Hey, I've got another experiment I want to try. Um, I don't know if it's going to work, but it sure sounds good when me and my friends sit around and talk about it. So let me try it on your community. Uh, I I, I think we do ourselves a disservice if we believe that we go back to what was um, coming out of this, that we go back to those same buildings, those same teachers, those same. You don't get half your budget cut and have that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are real conversations that I think that we need to have. And I don't think it's a one size fits all, as I don't for education. In general. And so um, I would urge anyone listening who are members of communities um, if you're union members, teachers, uh, activists, and you care about this issue, now is the time to start pulling yourselves together and figure out um, what would work best. What is the least we can accept? What will we not, what will we lay our bodies in front of to keep from happening? Um, Because if you wait, uh, for this to be over and for people to say, well, now we just have no choice. Uh, we know the kids who, who will get the short end of that.
3: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the only way I think your the first part of your question was, I mean, the your point was, I mean, it was, it was a great answer, but, but, I, uh, it struck me. I hadn't thought about that. I think that, uh, uh, you know, the fact that this is a 10 years ago actually is, is really helpful. And that was, that was great. That hadn't occurred to me. Um, because because it's true, like we, we see them chomping at the bit right now, like they're literally salivating, right? We know we you know here's here's you know De, you know DeVos out there like trying to like uh, get, figure figure out more ways to do use this crisis to get vouchers and mm-hmm. and use the federal bailout money for charters and other sort of free market reforms. We got all these Koch Koch brothers funded centers. Now saying yes, online learning. This is it. We all need to be going in. Like they do see that opportunity, um, and they are working in those directions. And it's a chance for them to undermine the teachers' unions too, right? Because we have everyone dispersed and not not collected in, the, in their buildings, and um, and 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 they like to use financial crisis cease to go after collective bargaining. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all these ways, marketing, marketing, um, you know, on, private online, uh, you know, learning opportunities, and all that, like. There's, and so we can see them salivating. They, they, want to, they want to come for it. But I think, the, you know, the, the, uh, the back end of that um, that you raise as well is, is so critical. It's sort of like what like so what does like what do we go back to after this? I mean, I feel like this whole thing is laid bare, you know, a whole lot of this stuff like we don't need the testing. We can choose we can choose to, to dish that if we want. You know, we can, we, we can actually sit here and focus on what we feel like is, is super powerful and needed for education. Like it's. You know, I I I want my I, want, I think shoot if there's an argument about the need to learn science right now, like that's critical and 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 folks scientific literacy you know needs needs to be built up. Um, stuff around you know the stuff you raised before Je- Jesse when you were speaking before and on your blog you've talked a lot about um you know the kinds of, uh, uh, you know, the social racial, uh, you know, class inequalities that are happening, uh, like all this stuff, just this whole crisis sort of laid bare about what are we going back to? You know, are we, are we, are we going to have large classes? Are we going to have, you know, do you know, we're like, like, there's just so much that, that we can just sort of, uh, begin to think about and dream about, about, okay, what would it mean to go back to, you know, I, you, it, it, the biggest thing for me was just looking at this going, oh, okay. They just canceled testing. Yeah. Hey, we can do that. Right. Like we decide to do it. We can do it. You know what I'm saying? And and uh, and and so I don't know. There's so many other avenues for that kind of thinking. And, you know, we have we're doing art and we're doing PE. I mean, we're doing the things that we want that we think are important. And so I just think all of that has been laid bare by this whole thing about what are we going to go back to? What kind of what kind of schooling, what kind of education uh, system are, are we thinking about returning to, assuming we do get to return at, at, some, at some point? At here. some point.
1: Yeah. And I, and I want to get into that for our last question to talk about what our vision for what public schools could be uh and how we'd want to reopen them in a new way um that would be anti-shock doctrine. Uh I just want to throw my two cents in about um this conversation too. Because Noliwe, I think you raised a really good point about had this happened a decade ago when they were just gaining steam for all their corporate education reforms, we would have been in real trouble. Um, and you know, when The last crisis of the Great Recession hit, that's exactly what they did. They used the Great Recession to push race to the top, which was, you know, uh, the carrot that they used um, to force states into more high stakes testing that we know is part of the school to prison pipeline and to uh, increase caps on charter schools around the country. Right. So they used that crisis to push a shock doctrine kind of. Uh, a, approach to education that, that helped further privatize and enrich uh, the wealthy, right? And over the last 10 years, we've built a massive resistance to that uh, shock doctrine, right? And we've actually had incredible victories. So the red state revolt of educators shutting down entire states, right? Um, and saying we'll reopen the schools when you get ready to fund them right and, and 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 right uncovering how teachers are working two and three jobs just to make ends meet uh and and the, the deplorable conditions in school buildings especially in these segregated schools where uh they're falling apart and then you know the strikes in chicago and in la where they they went on strike um, not just for their own wages which they deserve but but also to, to dramatically reduce high stakes, standardized testing. In, in LA, one of their demands was to stop random searches of students by police, right? And they, they ended up winning that for a, in every school building. They won a million dollar fund um, to support undocumented immigrant students uh, in their legal fees, right? And so they built this kind of social justice social movement unionism approach to fight back against some of the worst of the corporate ed reform movement and because of that we're in a lot better position right now uh to to take on their their new shock doctrine um that's really pushing right the online learning the quote personalized learning that will further enrich corporations and denies the fact that the the real education happens through collaboration not just through right doing uh worksheets or clicking on the right answer on a screen but by problem solving by identifying problems in our world Mm -hmm. and by figuring out collective solutions to those problems and that's when i've seen learning come to life in my classroom and that can't be replicated uh through a tech company course right and so um you know, I worry that now their main strategy is going uh, to be to, to um, try to use this crisis to push a whole set of ideological victories for, uh, for the wealthiest. Because right now, millions of people rejected the idea that uh, there wasn't enough. We live in the world's richest country. And millions of people are demanding Medicare for all, that everyone should have health care. Millions of people are, are demanding that we raise the minimum wage around the country, right? And we had some pretty uh, serious demands that uh, were embodied in um, demands that Bernie Sanders was raising in his campaign and that, that grassroots activists and movements were demanding. And now I think this crisis is going to mean that they are going to push. The idea that there isn't enough, right, that there's no longer enough to um, to help your child, to help your family. And we're all just going to have to tighten our belts and make do with less. Meanwhile, they're going to take all the bailout money and further enrich uh, the corporations. Right. And so I think that's Mm -hmm. our big task right now is to uh, make sure that we we push back on on that. And finally, I want us to just take a last minute here talking about our vision for what the schools could be when we reopen them. What do you all think?
2: I I, I hope um, that as these community schools reopen, that they're able to push to hold on to the best of what they were. Right. And that what they're able to leave behind are, are the things that they could stand to leave behind. So the the um, all of the ways that kids going into a classroom um, walk in, feeling value, just walking in the door, feeling value before um, anybody tells them what they need to learn um, or or what they need to read. The, the ways that some classrooms that we've all had the experience, we walk into and it's a hug. It's a hug for them. It's an emotional um, uh, and social hug. Um, I want that back. I want to make sure that 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 we don't lose that. The rest of it we can put together. Um, but you, you you don't rebuild people very easily. You can rebuild a classroom. You can rebuild a curriculum. It's far more difficult to rebuild a person. And so I hope the, the children that we get back, um, that we can that there's that there's enough love enough left of them, um, enough innocence, faith, trust. Um, in these institutions, in these communities, and in us, um, to give us another chance.
3: Um, you know, for me to answer that, well, there's there's a couple of things I think about. One is has not to do with so much with the schools themselves, but more about I think I like I hope I hope there's a, been a spread of sort of mass consciousness about the importance of public schools and the importance of teachers in the midst of all this, as folks have come to realize the 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 really crucial role that that you know the schools as institution play in, in our communities like these really critical roles and and so you know again ten years ago when the when the language is about how you know it was all bad teachers and 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 all and all getting rid of public schools I'd like I, I like I'd like to see them try and push that now I, I don't yeah. think folks are going to be on board with that um, so that's that's one piece of learning I, I hope that sort of uh, the broader we get from this but you know for, for me. What what I hope going back into schools is that that you know the the experience has actually got us to a place to really again question you know what like what is important and again what's worth keeping like you said in anyway, like like it's 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 uh you know because the crisis around the COVID nineteen sort of crisis you know yes it does create opportunities for uh you know Koch brothers and all those folks to like try and do what they want to do on the other hand it you know that crisis also presents presents us you know, with folks on the ground with sort of a, a different kind of opportunity, right? Because there's been this disruption and maybe we've begun to question, oh, do I, you know, do we, do we need the testing? Do we need to be teaching X? Do we need to teach Y? Oh, then, you know, I, actually, you know what? I think studies is really important to me. Like it creates an opening for us to kind of rethink what we're doing. And I hope we can, um, hope we can fill that space around, uh, you know, that, that space of like rethinking what we're doing in terms of education with with the stuff that we know is good. And so, I, And so I'm hoping for me, that that as we move back into schools at some point that uh you know again in the spirit of sort of keeping keeping what's good also maybe feeling freer from this from this experience to go ahead and 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 bring in something new or something you were scared to do before that you know is good and also get rid of something that you might have been scared to get rid of uh, from before as well right like like the rupture. Uh, also creates this opportunity for us to rethink ourselves as educators and and schools and as you know re- rethink what the purpose of schools and so I hope we can make that use that space in ways that's uh, you know that's healing and that's liberatory and that's resistant and so um, I want folks to be sort of freed from from the constraints they felt before and go ah oh, okay I can do what I need to do you know so yeah
2: oh we can't hear you are you muted.
1: Yes. All right. Okay. Thank you. Um, so I, let me just say a couple of words on this and then we have some questions coming in um, from some of the people watching on live stream and uh, we'll, we'll take questions in a moment. But I just want to say on this that, you know, their vision for the schools after COVID-19 is replacing teachers with computers and doing more online and Um, quote, personalized learning, right, as a way to enrich tech companies. And we could put forward a much more compelling vision of what is potentially possible with public education. And we can point to the community schools model. And I think we can say now more than ever, schools should be uh, hubs of support for our families, right? They could provide wraparound services. They could um, provide health care. And I think the demand for a nurse in every school would make, make so much sense to every single uh, working person in America that we need to go on the offensive with a national campaign immediately to make sure schools reopen with at least a f- one full-time nurse in every school building, right? And I think um, that has the potential to to gain traction, but it will be up to whether we can build a movement big enough uh, to do that. But, you know, school psychologists and trauma counselors and restorative justice counselors um, and social workers that can help, uh, you know, um, families dealing with homelessness and food insecurity. I think this crisis has revealed to many millions of people just how unstable so many families are. And I think our school system... Could be remade to support our communities and could connect with more and more people. So that's my hope uh, for for how we move forward. And I want to ask you guys a couple questions that have come in from from listeners to our discussion. So there's several questions about what we can do now, what organizing efforts we can be involved uh, in in the fight for more equitable schools. Anyone want to take that? <laughs>
2: There are all manner of um, groups, depending on where you are. Some are national. Um, One group that that for white listeners, I tend to focus on communities of color. um, But one that's specifically trying to organize white parents um, around noticing inequality and making choices with their kids um, to to help to integrate schools. I have a complex relationship with the idea of integration, however. Um, It's the thing that we know that that works systemically. It does other things, but it systemically works. So that's called integrated schools. Um, They're a national organization. And again, for for white parents who are really like, I want to get in there and make sure that I can use this privilege, the ways that that whiteness functions as capital um, and access. And I want to make sure that I'm using that. Um, it, to keep public schools strong, that's one group um, that's that's doing that. But your group, they're rethinking schools, right? You know, that's that's a, a, a an organizing entity. That's a group where you can get together with like-minded folks and come up with strategies um, that you can start to operationalize what we're saying and what we're thinking. I don't I don't think that there's a shortage of people um, or organizations. That that are addressing these issues, but I I would urge people to to investigate who in your community is doing this work. I can guarantee you they're there, um, but we don't always know who they are. Um,
3: So, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot, and I think to me it's 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 just that investigative piece because so much of it is localized too. I mean, rethinking schools. is, you know, it's a place where a lot of these folks convene in a way, right, through, okay. through the publications or the magazine or the website. Um, but, you know, there's also, we have we have regional conferences, you know, uh, you know, there's the Northwest Teaching for Social Justice Conference, there's San Francisco Teachers for Social Justice, there's the Chicago Justice, Social Justice Curriculum Fair, there's a whole bunch more. I mean, there's all these ones that are around. And so I think the main thing for folks is if you want to get active is to really search out those things regionally and locally that you can attend and go find your people. That's what I'm always telling uh, the teachers that I work with, right? I'm like, go go find your people because uh, that's where you, then you get access to who's doing the organizing, who's doing the work, and then you can start sorting through who you want to be with. My only caveat to say around that is that, uh, you know, you do have to do your homework within that space, right? We, there's a whole sort of nonprofit industrial complex that exists around education and education reform. Um, and there's a lot of folks who use language of justice and equity in in their framing as, as nonprofits. But a lot, but a fair number of those are are backed by like you know billionaire you know hedge funds. Like they're part of the corporate ed machine, and so you just have to sort of. Sort through and and really really pick through. Also, one of my favorite groups is uh, Education for Liberation, which is a a, a national uh, a national organization that's led by folks of color and and does a lot of really uh, radical work too. So um, I always make sure to give them a shout out too.
1: Yeah, and I just add that I think folks should get involved with the Black Lives Matter at School movement. Yeah. Yeah. You can go to school.com And we have four demands in this movement. The first is to end zero tolerance discipline and replace it with restorative justice. Mm-hmm. We talk about hiring more black educators. Uh, third, we're, we're saying we need to have black studies and ethnic studies in, yeah, our, yeah. in all of our schools. And then lastly, we say fund counselors, not cops. So we can um, help heal the trauma and and stop the, the school to prison pipeline. And, you know, for the first week in February, every year for the last few years, uh, we have a week of action in the schools. And this is an opportunity to get together with parents, students, educators and plan what you're going to do for the week of action to help really raise uh, the severity of institutional racism in our schools and and kick off a conversation that hopefully will will go all throughout the school year. And every day of the week, we teach to one of the 13 principals of the Black Lives Matter Global Network um, in our classrooms. And thousands of teachers across the country have pr- participated in, in it in over 40 cities uh, last year. And we hope to to build the movement even bigger this year and you know i'm uh also uh co-editing a book to um to help explain the rise of that movement and the potential of that to come out for next year so
3: also i just need to add to to say that um you know, folks who are involved in their unions in their education unions, don't forget about the union organizing, too, obviously. Right. So there's often progressive caucuses of the unions doing really good organizing and and trying to move the union work um, uh, much, much more progressively and much more leftward than than a lot of the unions are. So that would be another space too, for organizers.
1: Well, absolutely. That was like one of the questions that just came in, actually, was about, um, you know, what's the role of teachers unions in in this movement? Um, right now and i know um wayne and i we we've both endorsed a a caucus that's um running in the local teachers union elections here it's called the school seattle deserves and they have a social justice and ethnic studies platform racial justice platform and that election uh will be done around uh on april 30th we'll find out um we'll find out who wins and uh we're hoping that our School Seattle Deserves Caucus um, helps to uh, transform our union to look much more like L.A. and Chicago, because I've been so inspired by by their uh, fights against privatization in, in those cities. I, have Have you followed those
2: those fights at all? I, I, I have. They're amazing. Yes. Chicago, in particular, you know, has a long history of union organizing. And very often, though, um, the more active unions, what you're saying is it's a city that's organized. Um, Teachers, uh, people who are active in organizing, it's usually not just for schools. They're they're organizing around politics, police brutality, food access, uh, environmental justice. Some happen to be teachers. Some happen to be teachers who are members of unions. Some happen to be teachers who are members of unions whose leadership they're fighting against tooth and nail Um, because there's the national leadership and there's the local leadership and then there's the rank and file. Um, And so you it, it gets hard some places to to cast a broad net about unions as one thing or another. Chicago is not hard. It's not hard at all. (laughs) They are they are on the side of a good fight. They are they are um, in a fight that's about the whole child and the whole community um, and what will benefit it all. They're not just about what is happening in the classrooms. Um, And so if you're looking for unions, I mean, also, uh, for for teachers unions, um, just investigate the politics of the people who are running it, because I, I often run into folks who are like, but the folks in my teachers union are not for the things that I'm for. And that can happen. Um, okay. But when you get a place like you know, Chicago or you get a uh, L.A. or other smaller places all over the the country where people are about it. You know, they're they're about social change. They're about social justice. And they see the schools as a part of a larger conversation. Yeah, that that you want to support every way you can. Even if you're not a teacher, there's all kinds of ways to support unions and union organizing
3: um, that's separate from membership. Yeah. And I think I think it's critical is that uh, in terms of the question, then, you know, those kinds of unions, uh, you know, the, they, they can be the defender of, you know, against the privatization efforts. And also they can be the stewards for more the more radical and, and more equitable and more visionary forms of education if they so choose to be. Right. Okay. And so in this moment, I think that's the role of the unions is to like be fighting on the side of of, of equity and justice uh, and and be a bulwark, you know, against, uh, uh, you know, be a bulwark against. Um, the the sort of corporate reforms that are being pushed uh, from the other side uh, as we start thinking about moving back towards uh, towards school.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in Chicago, they have actually fought and won community schools and a commitment to funding of wraparound services right. at at you know um, a growing number of community schools there. And I would encourage people uh, educators who are on this call to look for a social justice caucus in their unions and join it if, if they have one. And if they don't have one, start start wow. your own, right? So yeah. the Working Educators Caucus in, in Philadelphia uh, is the reason why we have a national Black Lives Matter at school movement, right? I mean, we had a first action here in Seattle, but they took it and expanded it to a week of action in Philly and then helped to make it a national movement, right? And the core caucus that... Uh, One in Chicago helped to transform that union and the Moore Caucus in New York is doing incredible work pushing forward uh, a pro um, student and teacher agenda um, during this COVID crisis. And so, um, you know, definitely join the Social Justice Caucus or support it if you're a parent, um, for sure. So I just really have enjoyed my time with you all uh, in this conversation. And I hope that everybody listening has learned so much. I thought I'd just ask, lastly, how people can stay in touch with you all or follow your work.
2: Well, so I have a website, uh, Um I'm at Cornell uh, with the email nrooks at Cornell. And then I'm on Twitter. Um, and my handle is nrookie. Um, oh.
3: Yeah, R O O K I E. Thanks, Yeah, I'm a I'm a social media led act for the most part, so I have no Insta or no uh, no Twitter or anything. But you know, you can get me on Facebook if you want. My email is widely available if, um, at the University of Washington or or through Rethinking Schools. So folks can get at me if, if they need to, and um am happy to you know always support and 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 um uh you know make myself available as much as I can at least uh, as as folks need. So right on
1: people can find me on my website. I am an or on Twitter. Jesse D. Hagopian. Um, and uh, yeah, I would love to hear from folks how you're building the struggle in your your areas um, and what we can do to to link together a national movement for a new vision of what public education could be. So thank you all so much thank for this you. time together. I okay. learned a lot from you both and look forward to working with you
3: all right stay healthy y'all take care another bye-bye all right take care have a good one
0: thanks for listening if you liked this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the haymarket books youtube channel where events like this one are hosted live and don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org